Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here and the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. It is September 8th, 2021. Uh, podcast will drop tomorrow on the usual Thursday time. I'm going to talk ITP for a bit and then some other uh, updates, uh, regulatory approval updates from the FDA. So let's revisit uh or to be honest, uh, visit for the first time, uh, if you're me, the ASH ITP guidelines from 2019. So ITP, immune thrombocytopenia uh, purpura, uh, used to be called idiopathic. Now we know most of this is an immune problem as well as a, a, a platelet production problem. Now why are we talking about ITP on an oncology podcast? Well, hematology and oncology are forever wedded and, and linked together. Uh, if you want to know why, think back to the first cancer treated with chemotherapy. Uh, they were hematologists treating childhood leukemia. So when we tried to use chemo in non-hematologic conditions, uh, the birth of medical oncology, who had the most experience? The hematologist. So hemonc, uh, forever wedded, use those use that as, as a one term, not a combination of terms, in fact. So uh, at large centers, so where I trained uh, at the Medical University of South Carolina, we had a malignant um, hematology service uh, run by a fellow attending house staff. We had a medical oncology service, same sort of scenario. And then there was a non-malignant hematology service that was just consult only um, where they would see people with ITP. So in our practice, we see quite a bit of ITP on the inpatient service and, and many of you probably see these patients as well. So I thought it was worth um, talking about ITP uh, in light of this uh, mycophenolate mofetil in the first line treatment of ITP publication last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. But let's go back to the 2019 ITP guidelines get us on the same page here. All right, first line treatment of ITP, who needs treatment, people with playlists less than 30, or they're bleeding, okay? There's more detail to that, but we're gonna keep it simple. Uh, first line treatment recommendation from these guidelines are steroids, okay? Now, other second line options could include splenectomy or thermopoietin mimetic, which is what they prefer. Um, they recommend IVIG if you need a really rapid response uh, because these things take a while. So let's say you have somebody who presents with ITP and they need emergent surgery, IVIG. Um, what's notable here is there is a nice study from 2013 in blood by, uh, I'm going to mess this name up, uh, Gudbranstatir, uh, first author. Second author is Bergens, like the, the villains and trolls. If you have kids, you know what I mean. Uh, comparing rituximab and dexmethasone versus dexmethasone. 133 patients, no diagnosed with ITP, uh, they got DEX 40 milligrams for four days uh, um, with the option opportunity to pulse DEX later. Or rituximab weekly, standard dose rituximab, 375 milligrams per squared plus the same DEX weekly for four weeks. Uh, the primary endpoint here was platelets above 50 at six months. That occurred in 58% of people who got rituximab plus DEX compared to only 37% with DEX. There was a much longer time to treatment failure uh, or time to next treatment, like six months median time with DEX alone versus like 48 months with rituximab. So pretty long lasting benefit, more toxicity than rituximab arm though, certainly more costly, um, but you know, moderately more toxicity. And this is notable because the guidelines mention um, that this, they don't recommend rituximab upfront for these folks, even though the data look pretty strong uh, to do so. They do say if you need a long duration of response, it seems like everybody would want that. They do say it's reasonable to use rituximab. So th 
this is a class example where the guidelines are for guidance. And in fact, our local practice is very different than what the guidelines say. Uh, for example, the guidelines talk about tapering your steroids over six weeks. Uh, we tend to taper steroids over a longer period of time. You'll see that a little bit in this protocol here, uh, kind of what maybe other people do with, with steroids tapering. Uh, you'll also notice if you look at the ITP guidelines, the level of evidence or the recommendation here there, there aren't a lot of recommendations that are strong recommendations based on strong evidence. There's a strong recommendation on weak evidence or you know, a, a weak recommendation based on good evidence. You know, there aren't a lot of great data in this space, which is why there's kind of a hodgepodge of treatments and probably, I would guess, a lot of local variation in institutional, quote, standards based on how we manage ITP. Okay, um, so that's a little bit of the background there, all right? So you got steroids. IVIG for rapid response for kids. They use anti-rho immunoglobulin for the people who um, who uh, are, are rho antibody positive or antigen positive. Uh, splenectomy uh, is good. Uh, Thrombopoietic like ramiplostum and uh, Ltrombopag and others. And then you get down the list to like vincristine and cyclophosphamide and danazole thing we don't have to use very often anymore. Okay, so this brings us a study by Bradbury and colleagues published. Uh, so September 2nd in the New England Journal Medicine, 120 patients, all of them in the UK. This is an open-label study. Um, and the reason, the rationale for the study is that while steroids are first-line, uh, you know, they, they only pr produce a long-lasting response in, in maybe a quarter of patients. Um, uh, and maybe a quarter of patients have refractory disease right away to, to steroids. And so mycophilate mofetil apparently is commonly used as a second-line treatment in the United Kingdom due to cost and availability. It's an oral drug easier to get. Um, for example, in the hospital here in the US, it would be easier to get a patient to get a fill of mycophilate mofetil and bring it in um, and take as a home supply than it would sometimes to get approval for rituximab as an inpatient. Uh, by the way, this is the flight study. These patients had to have platelet count less than 30 and a need for treatment, so, so some sort of bleeding, but generally platelet count less than 30. And if you're new to Hemonc, platelet count 30 nothing to sweat about, okay? Platelets of 50, you can typically tolerate most general surgeries. Where we worry, and we're typically transfused platelets, platelets less than 10, or less than 20 with bleeding, okay? ITP folks initially don't tend to bleed a whole lot because the platelets they have are typically young, large, and very sticky platelets. So their platelet count of 30 if you have ITP is better than your AML patient with a platelet count of 30, for example, okay? All right. Uh, so let's get to the, the treatment here. You've got prednisone, one mg per kg, uh, or you could use, um, you know, it's prednisone, one mg per kg. And here's the, 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 that's the starting dose for four weeks, and then you taper immediately, sorry, no, no, sorry, one mg per kg for four days, and then you go right to 40 milligrams daily for two weeks, 20 milligrams for two weeks, 10 milligrams for two weeks, five milligrams for two weeks, five milligrams every other day for two weeks. That's the total duration of treatment, about 10 and a half weeks, uh, regardless of response. Now, if you did not have a response, you could get a couple pulses of DEX, 40 for four days. Now that's about six and a half weeks. Uh, uh, so 10 and a half weeks total of steroids was the protocol. Six and a half weeks of steroids above 10 milligrams to get to like the physiologic prednisone dose. I will comment here that our local practice and what I have seen most places is the one mg per kick until you get a response and then you start that taper. So it's kind of a shorter duration of steroids than maybe is commonly done in practice, but similar to what the steroid um, recommendation is from the ASH guidelines. So you either got steroids or steroids plus mycophilate mofetil. The mycophilate mofetil dosing was ramped up. Initially, you got 500 twice a day uh, for two weeks. 
If no side effects, you went to 750 twice a day for two weeks, and then a gram uh, twice a day thereafter. And you continue the mofentilate moftil, MMF, I'll call it, uh, until six months. And then uh, if they have a complete response, which is kind of above 100, then you taper by 250 a month uh, with the goal of, you know, basically a platelet count above 30. That's the goal here that we're trying to read. They call it the safe hemostatic platelet count. So platelet count of 30 is, is grand for people with ITP. All right, so, so that's the steroid dosing um, uh, plus or minus mycophilate moftil. And the primary endpoint here is kind of basically, t you know, how many people had a treatment failure and they, they kind of, um, and that's considered a platelet count less than 30. Uh, and the initiation of second-line treatment. Okay, so needing to have something else done because you know your plaque count keeps going less than 30, or you're having uh, bleeding. So treatment failure occurred in 22% of people in the mycophenolate moftil arm and 44% in the glucocorticoid only arm. Uh, that hazard ratio should be about 0.5, right? That's half, but it's, hazard ratio is um, 0.41. It's, they're doing a time to treatment thing here, but it's close. They do a couple different analyses, a couple different ways. They still end up with a hazard ratio about 0.4. That's a pretty large magnitude of impact in favor of mycophenolate mofetil. All right. Um, oh, I skipped over the patients here. Most of these patients are in their 50s. There are some down to the age 18. Um, uh, kind of a, a disproportionate number above the age of 65 in the mycophenolate mofetil arm. Most of these folks are white. Uh, nice thing they do here. This is probably uh, because it's in the United Kingdom. They differentiate Indian Asian from non-Indian Asian, and they're based on demographic low numbers for both. There's also uh, quite a bit more patients with secondary ITP in the glucocorticoid-only arm. So secondary ITP would be ITP uh, that occurs secondary to some other illness. Usually it's an acute viral illness like, say, COVID or the flu. Uh, this is classically what you see in kids. They get a cold. Two weeks later, they have ITP petechiae all over the place, all right? Uh, baseline platelet count was seven in these folks. So these are not folks with platelets at 25. The platelet counts are pretty darn low. Seven plus or minus seven is a standard deviation. So these are folks primarily, uh, you, know, you know, statistically, more than two-thirds had platelets less than 20 here if you look at the, the average plus or minus standard deviation. Uh, when you look at the... Um, you know, how many people had response? Again, response is above 100. 90% uh, mycophenolate moftil, 64% uh, glucocorticoid only. Uh, it does take a longer to get the response here. We're talking it takes a couple weeks to get your response because uh, that's it. the steroids take a while to work. Uh, the mycophenolate moftil takes a while to ramp up to the dose uh, to tolerate toxicity. Um, the, the folks who were refractory, as only 7% were refractory with an MMF steroid arm compared to 25% with the steroid arm. Um, so when you look at the efficacy, every efficacy endpoint is better with MMF plus steroids versus steroids alone. No difference in bleeding, which is probably the endpoint we care the most about. Uh, no difference in death, no difference in infection either, which is notable. There was more diarrhea, 34% versus 25%, uh, which you would expect with MMF. That's the big toxicity. I think about besides its immunosuppressive properties. Also, they did a nice quality of life, several different quality of life measures in the study. Kudos to the authors for that. Um, there was more fatigue, it appeared, in the MMF arm and more impairment in physical health summary in the MMF arm. So. Um, this does come with the added cost of mycophenolate moftil as well as some added fatigue uh, for, for patients, but certainly validates MMF at worst as a, as a great second-line option for people who are steroid refractory, I would say. 
Um, now, in light of what I mentioned with the ASH guidelines, how the data look pretty good with rituximab plus steroids versus steroids alone, I am curious to see if ASH adopts an, a different approach suggesting we should do steroids plus MMF first line in ITP patients. Um, I did not get into the detail, but I do want to note that there were very, very strict criteria for females of childbearing potential uh, with MMF uh, in this arm, something not to, not to gloss over, which I kind of did. Okay, so that's a that's your update of the year for ITP. Uh, next 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 two uh, updates will be brief. Um, Atizolizumab, T-Centric, uh, the company who makes that withdrew it. They took it away from the market here in the U.S. in consultation with the FDA after quote an assessment of the current treatment landscape. Uh, so Atizolizumab, as listeners of the pod may know, was FDA approved. Uh, I think it was an accel- yeah, it was an accelerated approval for triple negative breast cancer based on Impassion 130, which showed a PFS benefit with atizolizumab plus a Braxane, which is NAB paclitaxel. Impassion 131 was going to be the confirmatory study, did not show a PFS benefit. That was atizolizumab plus traditional, conventional paclitaxel, a metastatic breast cancer that was triple negative. Um, now, in the since these two studies came out, one positive for PFS, one not positive for PFS. Uh, Pembrolizumab uh, was given approval for triple negative breast cancer, uh, neoadjuvant with chemo, then adjuvant Pembro after surgery for triple negative breast cancer, regardless of PDL1 status. These impassioned papers were PDL1 positive. Uh, so Pembro got approval for triple, neg- triple negative breast cancer in the frontline setting, neoadjuvant, then adjuvant, uh, regardless of PDL1 status. There was benefit in both PDL1 negative, PDL1 positive. Uh, that was Keynote 522. And then Pembro was approved in the recurrent or metastatic uh, triple negative breast cancer for PDL1 positive, composite proportion score above 10. Um, so basically, in consultation with the FDA, Tizlan was like, our drug's not better than that. Uh, so we, we, we really can't fight to keep it on the market. So they withdrew that from the market, um, much to the dismay of, of that company, uh, I, w- I would guess. Um, final update, uh, the FDA approved zanubrutinib for Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia. Zanubrutinib is a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, a la calibrutinib, uh, kind of a second generation one, like a calibrutinib, uh, and then a brutinib, its first generation cousin. Uh, prior to this, zanubrutinib, not approved for CLL, but was approved for, um, <coughs> for mantle cell lymphoma. So this is approval for Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia. Uh, based on Aspen, which was an open-label study comparing zanubrutinib to abrutinib, about 100 patients in each arm, this was presented at ASCO this year. Uh, approval was based on, quote, a non-comparative assessment of response and duration of response. Zanubrutinib was not better than abrutinib statistically. Numerically, looks better, trends towards better, but it's not better, but it was approved anyway. Uh, essentially, what the FDA looks like they did is they just looked at the 100 patients on zanubrutinib and said, good enough, similar to the approval for abrutinib for Waldenstrom's, uh, which, which I guess is okay. I, I would rather have confirmatory studies, you know, or, or comparative studies are always better. I hope this doesn't incentivize stu- uh, trials in the future uh, and companies from just doing one-arm studies. But kind of what you might expect if you compared a second-generation drug versus a first-generation drug and kind of a chronic disease, uh, this is just looking at response rate, by the way. Um, and duration of response, but response rate's a little bit better. Second generation toxicity, a little bit, little bit less toxicity compared to abrutinib. Uh, but anyway, it is approved. 
Um, so, so worth pointing out. Uh, again, the, the key thing would be, uh, and we probably know the answer to this: is is there data, you know, to use zanubrutinib after brutinib failure? Probably not. After brutinib intolerance, yeah, would feel good about that. But we would need more data, uh, really, to confirm that uh, that that uh, a BTK inhibitor might not work after failure of a BTK inhibitor. But don't know that for sure. That's just a guess on my part. Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, you can follow uh, the the. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmVitNib. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.